All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, it is Pastor Doug Minton. It is Monday, and therefore we are standing in the confessional corner. This week we begin looking at what the Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions edition from Concordia Publishing House classifies as Article 5. Some of the places have Article 3 because this is the third point of disagreement that we have between the Lutherans and the Roman Church in 1531. Article 5, as it is, is about love and fulfilling the law. Can a Christian fulfill the law of God? Can a Christian truly love? That is the question. And of course, another question is, where does this love come from? So we're going to look at the first 14 paragraphs this week of Article 5. On this topic, the adversaries quote against us, If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Matthew 19.17 Likewise, it is the doers of the law who will be justified. Romans 2.13 And many other things about the law and works. Before we reply to this, we must first declare what we believe about love and the fulfilling of the law. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Jeremiah 31.33 do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law, Romans 3.31. If you would enter life, keep the commandments, Matthew 19.17. But if I have not love, I gain nothing, 1 Corinthians 13.3. These and similar sentences testify that we are to keep the law when we have been justified by faith and so grow in fulfilling the law more and more by the Spirit. Furthermore, we are not talking about ceremonies, but about the law that addresses the movements of the heart, namely the Ten Commandments. Faith brings the Holy Spirit and produces a new life in hearts. It must also produce spiritual movements in hearts. The prophet Jeremiah shows what these movements are when he says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Therefore, when we have been justified by faith and regenerated, we begin to fear and love God, to pray to Him, to expect aid from Him, to give thanks and praise him and to obey him in times of suffering. We also begin to love our neighbors because our hearts have spiritual and holy movements. Okay, so Melanchthon puts out all these verses about the law and love and all of this. For what reason? To show that we are to keep the law when we have been justified by faith. In fact, it is only by being justified by faith that we are able to even begin to keep the law. Not that we will ever keep it completely and totally perfect, because we'll see that in a moment, but the keeping of the law always comes after justification. Keeping the law and the quality and virtue of love are part of sanctification, holy living, not justification, the being declared right by God. So why is it that we cannot keep the law, whether before or after justification? Why can't we keep it perfectly? That Melanchthon goes into in paragraphs 5 through 8. These things cannot happen until we have been justified through faith and regenerated, we receive the Holy Spirit, first, because the law cannot be kept without Christ. Likewise, the law cannot be kept without the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is received through faith, as Paul declares in Galatians 3.14, that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Also remember 
How can the human heart love God while it knows that he is terribly angry and is oppressing us with earthly and endless distress? The law always accuses us. It always shows that God is angry. God is not loved until we receive mercy through faith. Not until then does he become someone we can love. Why is it that we can't keep the law perfectly before or after we have been justified by faith? Because the law always accuses us. It never allows us to say, hey, I'm doing pretty good right now. There's always something that it points out that we are not doing right. We are not being sufficient enough. The bar is set too high. We can never get over it by ourselves. And we can't even get off the ground to get to that bar if we did not have Christ being justified and without the Holy Spirit, which is without faith. So now, what is it that we can do with the law? That's paragraphs 9 and 10. Civil works, that is, the outward works of the law, can be done in some measure without Christ and without the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, from what we have said, it seems that what belongs only to the divine law, that is, the heart's affections toward God, which are commanded in the first table, cannot be done without the Holy Spirit. But our adversaries are fine theologians. They focus on the second table and political works. They don't care about the first table. They act as though the first table were of no matter. They certainly require only outward fulfillment of the law. They in no way consider the law that is eternal and placed far above the sense and intellect of all creatures. Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. All right. So they are fine theologians in the Roman church. Fine theologians in all of the various different church bodies in Christendom even today. But the problem with the Roman ones in the 16th century and before and even after they focus on the second table and political works. Why is this? Because they believe, and I can't quote the passage right now, and I'm just seeing this again, remembering it from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, that in baptism, the Roman Catholic Church believes that all original sin has been done away with so that we don't have to worry about the first table. We can Love the Lord our God with our heart. Now, everything else requires us to be loving to our neighbors. And therefore, yeah, there is no need to worry about the first table. That's already covered in baptism. It's the rest of life that then has to cover commandments 4 through 10. And that is the problem. They treat three of the Ten Commandments as not being involved anymore. That we aren't required to keep them because, well, that took that was taken care of in our baptism. Well, yes and no. I mean, yes, in our baptism, we do make promises that we will be faithful. And in the case of infant baptisms, like I had one yesterday, it is the congregation and the sponsors and the parents that are speaking those promises which is also why we have confirmation, is that then that gives the child, after they have been taught the faith more thoroughly, that they can say, yes, this is my faith, and make the same promises that were made at their baptism. Not because of something great in us, 
but because of the way that the church has been set up. And the Roman church at this time even had the same thing. There's still the issue of the sacrament of confirmation in the 16th century that will be taken up a little bit later in the Apology. But right now we continue with what it is that binds us together as human beings. And that is the Ten Commandments that brings about that idea of what is right and wrong. That moral law written on our hearts. And so now we look at 11 through 14. Christ was given for this purpose, that forgiveness of sins might be bestowed on us for his sake. He was also given so that the Holy Spirit might bring forth in us new and eternal life and eternal righteousness. Therefore, the law cannot truly be kept unless the Holy Spirit is received through faith. So Paul says that the law is established through faith and not made useless because the law can only be kept when the Holy Spirit is given. Paul teaches the veil that covered the face of Moses cannot be removed except by faith in Christ by which the Holy Spirit is received. See 2 Corinthians 3, 14 through 18. For he says, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Paul understands by the veil the human opinion about the entire law, the Ten Commandments and the ceremonies. In other words, hypocrites think that outward and civil works satisfy God's law, and that sacrifices and observances justify a person before God by the outward act. But then this veil is removed from us, that is, we are freed from this error, when God shows to our hearts our uncleanness and the hatefulness of sin. Then, for the first time, we see that we are far from fulfilling the law. We learn to know how flesh is self-secure and doesn't care. It does not fear God and is not completely certain that we are cared for by God. It imagines that people are born and die by chance. Then we experience that we do not believe that God forgives and hears us. But when we hear about the gospel and the forgiveness of sins, we are consoled through faith. We receive the Holy Spirit so that now we are able to think correctly about God, to fear and believe God, and so on. From these facts, it is clear that the law cannot be kept without Christ and without the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's break these paragraphs down for a moment here. So Paul says that the law is established through faith and not made useless because the law can only be kept when the Holy Spirit is given. Therefore, Melanchthon goes back to Romans 3.31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the faith or uphold the law. And that is what Melanchthon talks about over and over again in the Augsburg Confession and in its apology. What Luther talks about in the small called articles is that the Pope says that we have gotten rid of everything that makes us church. No, we actually hold it in better esteem than those who call themselves the church. Not that we were breaking off, but that we were trying to reform, to bring out the abuses, bring them to light, and to get rid of them. That was the whole point of the Augsburg Confession, was to bring these to light so that then when a council was called, which would be called shortly after Luther's death, the Council of Trent, that then we would have a place to talk and a platform to be able to decide these things from. 
And of course, the Council of Trent just said anything that's on the Lutheran platform is anathema and is the scourge of hell, including the idea that the law is established through faith and that the law can only be kept after the Holy Spirit is given. Because the Holy Spirit gives us the opportunity, gives us the promptings to then uphold the law. It is not because we are so good. It is because God is good to us and has forgiven us. Therefore, we seek to honor him by keeping his law. And then he goes into the veil of Moses, as Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 3. And we hear it again in the uh, quote from paragraph 12. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's particularly verses 15 through 17 of 2 Corinthians 3. So to this day, not just when Paul is writing to the Corinthians in his second letter, not only when Melanchthon is writing the Apology, but even today, in synagogues and in Christian churches that want to bring in works into salvation, the veil of Moses is still there. The veil of the hiddenness of God that you can only get to once you get to a point of being good enough. And that was the problem. Moses never spoke like that. Because Moses knew the problems. Moses knew what happened when you disobeyed God. Because Moses did not get to go into the promised land. It was Joshua who led the people of Israel out of the wilderness into the land of Canaan and led the conquest. Moses dies on the other side of the Jordan River. This is the veil, that covering, that keeps us from seeing the truth. And only when that veil is ripped away and the gospel is proclaimed in its purity do we get to see our love for God growing because it's even just begun with that first acknowledgement of the gospel. And it's not that outward works by doing and saying the proper prayers and ceremonies that we get things right with God and that God loves us. No, God loves us from the beginning. As Melanchthon says in paragraph 11, Christ was given for this purpose, that forgiveness of sins might be bestowed on us for his sake. Jesus was given for us so that we might be forgiven. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the love of God. Not because of what you've done, not because of what I've done, but because we can't do it. We can't do it on our own. So the forgiveness of sins must be done through him. And so it is his death, his resurrection, that brings about that forgiveness, brings about that justification that is only attained by faith. All right, we're going, to drop, we're going to leave off there, and we'll pick up next week in paragraph 15, speaking more about this idea of what the truth of justification is as we mold into what it is and how love fits in with justification and sanctification and all this. 
But until then, this is Pastor Dugman wishing you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology this week. Amen.